0: Okay, so our text today is from Exodus chapter seven, verses seven through 13. Exodus seven seven through 13. Go ahead and read. That. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for your word and for the for the wonderful story that you have made us a part of. We know that this story of bondage and deliverance. and Sanctification and mission. that is it is repeated in our lives. And in every life, Lord. <clears throat> For you free us from our Egypt. And you sanctify us. And you lead us into the land uh, to glorify your name. Father, we pray that your word today, by your Holy Spirit, uh, would reach out into our hearts and minds, give us understanding, um, and uh, and work your will in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, a little review again. How many years between the promise to Abraham and the Exodus? Let's slow down a little bit here. In the promise to Abraham and the exodus. 400 years. You'll get that next time. Everybody will shout it out. How old was Moses when God called him to deliver his people? 80. 80. The text today says so. He was 80. Just see if you're paying attention. How old was Aaron. 83, okay, good. Um, And can you name Moses' two sons? Gershom and Eliezer. By the time we're done with this, you will be able to name them. What about his wife? Zipporah, Zipporah, okay. Just a reminder that Moses had a wife and children. There was family life there of some sort yeah (laughs) okay Um, so important themes from Exodus so far we've been over covenant and the dominion mandate we've been uh, really kind of driving that quite a bit Um, covenant was the basis for crying out to God for help it still is today we can cry out to God just um, as the Psalms do all the time Um, Lord where are you come and do what you said you're going to do Uh, things are not The way they should be, come and do what you said you're going to do. Uh, To grumble like Christians, we need to be able to do this. And we do that by calling out to Him, crying out to Him on the basis of the covenant. We are His people. If we understand the Psalms, we are the bride of Christ. And we're not to be a nagging wife, but still, you can call out to God and say, Hey, you've got some covenant responsibilities, Lord. Um, You said you were going to do this. You said you were going to fix the barn. Fix the barn, Lord. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you said you were going to take out the trash. Take out the trash, Lord. I'm not saying we should, yeah, you get it, okay. Grumble like Christians. Uh, <clears throat> God remembers his covenant and he responds. Uh, it's there, the covenant is there. To, he invites us to do this. Uh, the dominion mandate is behind all this. Um, it is, the dominion mandate is basically God saying, here's creation, it's yours, take care of it. Right, manage this well. Um, this is something that it's, was given to mankind, to human beings. This is uh, so. This is behind everything is the Dominion mandate, and we went over how individualism and collectivism were pursued. That's recorded in the Book of Genesis. Um, individualism didn't work, so God wiped everything out with the flood. Every is every man for himself, and then the collectivism of Babel that failed. Um, because they were uniting in the name of man, and and God put an end to that, and he demonstrated here 's how I want you to do it it 's like this it, it, do it like this, and when he provided the covenant, he provided this pattern um, of deliverance, consecration, and mission that 's what he 's doing in this in in the book of exodus really is demonstrating this is how covenant my covenant with you. Uh, to manage the world. This is how you're supposed to take dominion. Um, Deliverance, consecration, mission. Deliverance, consecration, mission over and over again. Out of Egypt to Sinai into Canaan. Out of Egypt to Sinai into Canaan over and over again. Covenant renewal worship. Remember we talked about how covenant renewal worship is that pattern. Um, And that's why we worship as we do. We said last time when we were together, we said that selfishness and sin is our Egypt and the world around us is our Canaan. So life in the church is our Sinai, where God speaks his word to us and trains us in righteousness. You are Israel at home. You are Israel at work. You are Israel in Walmart and McDonald's. If you are in Christ, you are Israel everywhere you go. Um, I put Israel and Jerusalem, dot, dot, dot. I'm supposed to know what that means. Um, (laughs) Life in the church is about preparing us as individuals and as a congregation to carry out the mission of saving the world. Okay, so life in the church is about preparing us as individuals and as a congregation to carry out the mission of saving the world. So we need to see in the Exodus story the pattern of life provided for us by God. Deliverance, consecration, mission. This is repeated and displayed for us new every Lord's Day in our gathered worship. So we're about to enter the deliverance chapters in the story in the book of Exodus, um, showing how just exactly how God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. In this story there are two main ideas. Okay, so in, in the story of uh, Exodus, um, it, in the book of Exodus, there are two main ideas. That is, the covenant of Yahweh with his people, and the power of Yahweh over the power of Egypt. Okay? So there's, there's two main themes here, the power of Yahweh, the covenant of Yahweh with his people, and the power of Yahweh over, over um, the power of Egypt, especially over their, um, everything that they worshipped. Okay? God's power over everything they worshipped. <clears throat> um, for us today, uh, it would be money, sex, technology, etc. Um, these are dominant things, but in their world, um, similar but different things we're going to take a look at. We've already looked at the covenant quite a bit, and we understand that God chose a people for himself, and that through them he would bless the world with light and life. That is how God planned to do this, to choose a people, to form them, to teach them, to train them, um, and through them to bless the world with light and life. This is the calling of the people of God from generation to generation. That is what we are supposed to be about. That is our business. That is our purpose. God created a seed and nurtured it. Now this, when I was Studying for this, this image just came to me, and so I'm not going to develop it a whole lot, except it just seems to be a powerful image. God created a seed and nurtured it in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. They're like a seed. He planted that seed in Egypt with Joseph. Okay, he took that seed and he planted it in Egypt, in the dirt, and Egypt and Israel died there. So in a sense, there's there's a kind of death that happens when the Pharaoh comes up and doesn't know Joseph and, um, and we hear uh, Israel in slavery and in bondage crying out to God for help. That seed died and it is about to be raised again in Moses. Moses' job is to bring them out almost as if this thing is coming out of the dirt, right? He's bringing the seed of Israel up out of the dirt, And it is becoming something. Um, In all of this, we are meant to see the sovereignty of God from beginning to end. It was He who made Israel. It was He who planted Israel in Egypt for the very purpose of delivering them from it. That's that's important. God planned for them to be put into Egypt. He put them there um, in order to call them out from it. Come up, come out grow <clears throat> um, so the sovereignty of God it is also he who frees them in spite of all the stubborn tyranny of Pharaoh and this is still the way of God with us today <clears throat> I think of how important um, the imagery of gardening is to understanding the gospel um, to putting something um, in the ground and that it, it has to die uh, the seed dies and um, unless the seed dies, the plant can't grow. So the thing's got to go into the ground um, and be covered, and then up from the ground, it rises. Um, and I was reminded of uh, Hosea 11:1 and, and Matthew chapter two, how he, uh, Matthew links these two together. Hosea says, um, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt." Called my son. I just imagine a farmer looking over the plant, going, "Come out, come out." That's I, I, I see that image pretty strongly. Gardening and the gospel. Yes, of course. The the farmer has to wait, right? The gardener, you wait. You put the seed in, and it takes a while to do this. But God designed this. Nature just preaches <clears throat> um, so clearly. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of the ground of suffering and enslavement, I called my son. <clears throat> seed time and harvest and all the growing in between. Uh, this is, God's just woven this into nature. And you can't avoid it. Um, seed time and harvest again and again and again and again. The cycle of nature is the thing that God is, is proclaiming to us. God forms us and plants us in our Egypt in order to grow a particular kind of crop. So God's growing different kinds of crops, okay? They're all crops and he expects to reap a harvest. Um, So he plants you in one story and he plants someone else in another story. Uh, Some people get planted over in China. Some people get planted over in America or in England or Australia, wherever you... God plants you in different places Uh, But it's all a planting, and he's growing things up. Uh, So he forms us, he plants us in our Egypt uh, to grow a particular kind of crop. You are what you are by God's design. And by his call, your purpose is to glorify and enjoy him forever, okay? So that's the overall picture. All of this uh, pertains to God's covenant with his people. Moses now begins to describe the power of Yahweh over the power of Egypt, and this is the beginning of God's deliverance. So let's see what the Lord says through the text today. Again, we're in Exodus chapter seven. Um, just a kind of a quick overview. That there are five chapters in Exodus to cover the 10 plagues. Five chapters to cover 10 plagues. Um, we're gonna read each chapter, but we will study the passage as a whole as well. Exodus from Exodus seven eight to Exodus eleven ten. That's where you're going to see the plagues, all the plagues of Egypt, um, and um, most people can't really name all of them. But most of us can name a few uh, without even looking at the text, right? Um, <clears throat> so here's here's how kind of I want to give you an idea of the structure here. Um, so the prelude to the ten plagues comes in our text today from uh, chapter seven, verses eight through 13. Um, snakes, snakes. Um, and then the rest of chapter seven has to do with water being turned to blood. The Nile gets turned to blood. Uh, chapter. The first part of chapter eight comes the plague of the frogs. Frogs, plague of frogs. Uh, this, uh, the middle part of chapter eight is gnats, or as the I think the King James version has it, is lice. Either way, small, irritating, very irritating, tiny bugs. Um, and then uh, the the last part of chapter eight is flies. So you got frogs, gnats, and flies. <clears throat> and then uh, chapter nine we have livestock. The pestilence that impacts the livestock. So uh, no more beef. You can't, yeah. No, no steak. Uh, but your livestock dies, uh, which it's really kind of hits you where, where it hurts. Uh, back then, livestock was your your livelihood, uh, the way you could eat and live. Um, boils, um, skin disease, right, and stuff coming up on your skin, painful, painful skin disease. Um, hail is also in chapter nine. Hail from the sky. Um, Huge things like tearing things up. And of course, there were no insurance companies then. So, uh, yeah. Um, And then, uh, chapter 10, you have locusts um, who come and eat whatever's left. And then uh, you also have darkness. That is the ninth plague. Chapter 11, we have the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Um, So, this is the structure. Again, what's going on here, though, is not random. These plagues, God's not going thinking, hey, what's going to be really irritating to these people? You know, how can I just like, really bug them? <laughs> He's not trying to bug them. <laughs> he is, however, confronting their gods. He is confronting their gods. <clears throat> and he is displaying his power deliberately over their gods. And he begins with the snake. Uh, That's important. Um, When Moses first came to Pharaoh, we heard Pharaoh arrogantly ask, who is Yahweh? Moses came and and told him, hey, Yahweh says, let my people go. Um, And Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. It's from Exodus chapter five, verse two. By the end, he will know Yahweh and he will let Israel go. He will change his mind about this because he will know Yahweh. In fact, many others will know Yahweh because of what Yahweh does to Egypt. Um, In Exodus seven, five in our text today um, or just before our text today, uh, God says, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. That, that phrase is actually repeated quite a bit in Exodus. They will know that I am Yahweh. So God wants them to know, hey, it's me. I'm Yahweh. Uh, I'm the one in charge here. Not, not just my name. You're not just going to know my name. You're going to know that I am over all of your gods. Right? That your gods cannot save you from me. <laughs> um, but in Exodus 9 16, we're told, <clears throat> God says this to Pharaoh, But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Not just in Egypt, <clears throat> but in all the earth. <clears throat> in Exodus eleven seven. 7, uh, God says, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we we read this. Before the men lay down, she, being Rahab, this is where Rahab helps the, the spies, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your El, that's your God, he is El in the heavens, he's God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So when Joshua leads the Israelites into Canaan, they know about this. They've heard. God said to Pharaoh, so that the world may know. The world's going to know uh, how they're going to know who I am and what I've done. <clears throat> they certainly knew in Canaan. Even 300 years later, in the days of Samuel and Israel's fighting with the Philistines, the Philistines recall that Yahweh, Israel's God, overthrew the Egyptians with terrible plagues. First Samuel 4:8. 300 years later. So. Uh, this this message goes out. God accomplishes his purpose. They fear Yahweh. <clears throat> some initial observation. No, I think I need to back up a little bit first. Um, so I said something about the gods, the Egyptian gods. Each one of the plagues pretty much corresponds to some of the Egyptian gods. So the first, this prelude about the snakes. Um, if you've ever seen any sort of depictions in movies or uh, anything like that in, uh, of... Uh, pharaohs, you have probably seen the serpent on the front of the cobra on the, the front of the crown with the circular disc behind it. <clears throat> this was the symbol of Wajit. Wajit. Um, she was a, a snake god, one of the primal gods or goddesses of Egypt, uh, very ancient, uh, and a symbol of power in Egypt. And uh, God. God's choice of the snake here is deliberate. I mean, you know, wh- why? You wonder, why did God choose, like, okay, I'm gonna show my power by casting down a staff and having it turn into a serpent. Why? What's so important about that? We're gonna look at that a little bit more in just a minute. Um, water turning to blood was a direct affront or a direct challenge to Happy, Osiris, and Gnum. Gnum, K-H-N-U-M. Um, these were all uh, gods of the Nile, um, had power over life, the life-giving power of water. And um, so when, when, when God turns the water to blood, turns the Nile to blood, he's directly challenging Hoppy Osiris, and Num. Uh, the frogs. <clears> Hapi <throat> um, is also associated with frogs, and so is Hecate. Um, they are both fertility gods. I found out that, yeah, <laughs> Hoppy. Hoppy frogs. Um, so I, I found out that um, the frog was a symbol of fertility both in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, around the rivers. Apparently, they associated frogs with fertility probably because when the rivers flooded, they saw more frogs. I, I, I think that's the idea, but uh, frogs associated with fertility. Hecate is a goddess of fertility in Egypt. Hoppy uh, as well. And um, so the frogs, you know, God's just saying, look, the frogs are mine, <laughs> right? They're not they're not hoppies or heckets. <clears throat> um, the gnats and the lice, or gnats or lice, whichever one it is, um, were an affront or a challenge to Seb, the Egyptian god Seb. Uh, he was an earth god, and uh, gnats were supposed to be in his power. Flies, Uachit. Wachit. Uh, the god Wachit was a fly god, basically. Uh, and flies were his domain. <laughs> uh, he was responsible for them. But God directly challenged that. Um, livestock, pestilence. Uh, in that, God is directly challenging Amun and Ptah. Tah, Tah. Um, Nevis as well. Three, three gods there in charge of uh, livestock and disease. Boils, um, see, Imhotep, and Serapis. Uh, these, these gods were in, char- in charge of those things. Uh, health, basically. Uh, Imhotep, especially. Imhotep was appealed to in embalming procedures and in all kinds of medical things. Um, and I think Serapis was as well. Hail is a direct challenge to Isis and Nut and Shu. And the locusts direct challenge to uh, Serepia, which was a a goddess in the form of a locust. Um, And darkness, a direct challenge to Ra, the sun god. And Aten and Horus, some of the major gods of the Egyptians. And the death of the firstborn, also a challenge to Osiris and Ra and pretty much all the gods of Egypt. So, God chose these plagues as a direct confrontation to the gods and goddesses of Egypt. <clears throat> so some initial observations as I kind of looked over all of the, the whole plague story. <clears throat> Ten is the number of fullness of quantity in the Bible. Um, seven is the fullness of quality. right? So it's it, it, completion. Um, seven days is a, is a complete thing and seven is a is the number of perfection. Um, ten is a number of fullness of quantity, things you can count. There are ten plagues and there are ten commandments. Never thought about that? Ten plagues, ten commandments. You know, well, he chose that deliberately. <clears throat> These things are known throughout the world as testimony that Yahweh is the supreme God. Um, people, e- even atheists who have never really looked much at the Bible, they have heard about the plagues. Um, and what God did to Egypt. The plagues are acts of judgment. That's important to know. Not just deliverance of his people, they are acts of judgment, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and like the conquest of Canaan. When God sends his people to um, wipe out everyone in Canaan, that is an act of judgment. That is God acting, uh, carrying out an act of judgment, just as with these plagues, and with Sodom and Gomorrah, <clears throat> um, so with the plagues God is delivering Israel he is proclaiming his sovereignty and he is making a distinction between his seed and the seed of the serpent remember that in Genesis we talk Genesis 3.15 um, you know, you're going to uh, I'm going to do it, uh, set up enmity Let's see, I think I should read it directly here Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent in the garden. I will put enmity, that's hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, um, Okay, yeah. So uh, there's that enmity from the beginning between uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And here in... uh, in Exodus, we're seeing this uh, portrayed. Uh, so again, why does God choose as a sign the first sign? Throw down your staff, and it's going to turn into a snake. Right? Um, it's it's a bit of a setup, really, because He knows what Pharaoh is going to do. <clears throat> um, okay, um, so. God's making a distinction between his seed and the seed of the serpent. Egypt's attachment to the serpent is not by accident. Um, Another observation is that there's a pattern to all the plagues. You'll find that two come with warnings, and then the third one without a warning. It happens again and again and again. So uh, you'll see that, for example, uh, water to blood and frogs both come with warnings. I'm warning you, this is what's going to happen. The gnats come without warning, no warning. And then the flies and the livestock, they come with warnings, but then the boils come with no warning. And the hail and the locusts come with warnings, and darkness comes with no warning. And then the the death of the firstborn comes with a warning. Um, So there's that pattern to it. I warned you twice, (laughs) right? And then third time, you're out. Um... So I also noticed the magicians can imitate the first two of the plagues, or three if you count the serpent thing. they can imitate the serpents, they can imitate the water to blood, and they're able to imitate the um, the frogs is it yeah it's the frogs um, I think it's the frogs yeah um, they can imitate those, but when it gets to the gnats, they can 't do it, and they say, "Well, oh, this is the finger of God because we can 't do this <coughs> um, yeah, 3 through 10 are beyond them. Most of the plagues show up again in John's Revelation. This is something else I observed. Ironically, as judgments against unfaithful Israel. When you read through the Revelation, you see uh, at least two-thirds of these plagues come back as judgments against Israel um, in the book of Revelation. Um, and uh, re- remember that in uh, Revelation eleven eight. 8, um, Jerusalem is referred to as Egypt. Uh, she who is called Sodom and Egypt. Um, is, is a, it's the city where their Lord was slain. Right? He's talking about Jerusalem, Jerusalem being called Sodom and Egypt. Um, so, um, Okay, so another observation here from Exodus 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 3. Moses is great even in the eyes of the Egyptians. Um, in, in chapter 10, that's, That's pretty much what we're told. Uh, I don't know if Moses has just lost some of his modesty or what, but um, this is in the eighth plague. Um, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, uh, How long will you refuse to humble yourselves before me, let my people go, that they may serve me? Um, Okay, that's not the reference I wanted. Exodus 10.3 is not... Well, there is a reference there in, in Exodus that says, Moses was great even in the eyes of the Egyptians. The Egyptians knew that Moses was was uh, somebody. <clears throat> okay, uh, so as I pointed out, the, the plagues are against the gods of Egypt. Um, these plagues are not random troubles sent by God. They are direct references to Egypt's gods. In Numbers 33, verses 3 through 4, we read this. They set out from Ramses in the first month. This is about the Exodus itself when they get delivered. On the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Right, that's Numbers 33, 3-4. Uh, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Okay, um, so our text uh, in Exodus chapter 7 is, a, like I said, a prelude to the plagues um, because it begins Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh um, and the snakes, the snakes issue. <clears throat> okay, so in our text uh, we're told, first we're told how old they are. Um, Eighty and 83. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Okay, so this is a rare instance where God gives you a look at the script. He, he, he tells you, Pharaoh's next line is, okay, this is, when you go in to see Pharaoh, his words are going to be, prove yourselves by working a miracle. He, God tells Moses and Aaron, this is what he's going to say. How does God know that? Because he wrote the script, right? <laughs> he wrote the script. So here's the next lines. Pharaoh's gonna say this, and when he says that, you say this, or you, you do this. Um, throw down, your, tell, tell Aaron to throw down your staff. Um, so Aaron takes the staff and throws it down. The staff snake thing is no random design. Um, snakes are at the heart of Egyptian religion and power Um, cast down your staff. Well, this is a a setup, and Pharaoh takes the bait. Um, Because when Pharaoh sees this, Pharaoh, I think, I'm I'm reading between the lines here. Pharaoh says, oh, snakes, we can do snakes. Because immediately, he summons his magicians and his sorcerers. He he doesn't even pause, doesn't hesitate, doesn't go, whoa, hey, that's pretty cool. You can turn a a staff into a serpent. Um, But he says, no. We, we can do that. I've seen that done. I got, I'm going to call these guys and they can do this. So, this is not a surprise to Pharaoh. Okay, um, <clears throat> There's a lot of different takes on what's going on here um, with these magicians. Um, the magicians, uh, there's a group, group labeled magicians and it seems to be under them within that group are wise men and sorcerers. Magicians are made up of wise men and sorcerers. Uh, the same, these are the same guys who tried to interpret Pharaoh's dreams back in Joseph's day over 200 years earlier. Remember those guys? Okay, they, they were not able to do so well. Um, there's a couple of Hebrew words here, uh, chartom, uh, chakam, and kashaf. I'm not sure if they actually come from Egyptian or really Hebrew, but uh, the chartom are engravers and writers and scribes, but they got the name... They get that that name gets translated as magicians because in egypt uh these people uh were said to it was these people who were said to have magical abilities there is some kind of connection between writing and magic in the ancient world <clears throat> um and especially if you can engrave something on something else um but they're magicians and then there are wise men who are you know they know things and uh Often they're the same group of people. And then sorcerers. These tend to be like the, the guys who can uh, mix up chemicals. They, they, mix, they, they, they make, quote unquote, magic with stuff. Right? And if you think about it, technology is not far removed. And pharmaceuticals, for that matter. <laughs> you know, Making magic with stuff. Okay? Uh, they make things happen with stuff. And so these are sorcerers. Um, so the people who did all the embalming stuff, for example, and uh, the priests and all that, uh, they, they were often among these people. Moses would have been very familiar with these guys. He grew up, remember, for 40 years, Moses was in the house of Pharaoh. These people were probably around all the time. He knew these people. He probably even knew what they could do with their stabs. Okay, So I don't think Moses was very surprised at this. <clears throat> um, the magicians did the same thing, the text says. And one of two things is going on here. And, and different scholars come out in different camps about this. Um, either the magicians are tapping into actual spiritual powers, or being used by demons, right? Either way, they're tapping into spiritual powers where they can actually turn a staff, a stick, into a snake. Okay? Possible. I think it's more probable. Um, I'm not denying that the other one's possible. I'm I'm just thinking, it seems to me, I'm going with this one. Um, These magicians are practicing a rare form of snake handling that can still be done today. It's pretty cool if you research it a little bit. You can actually take, and it really only, it seems to work best apparently with the Egyptian cobra Um, that you can press the, the nape of the neck of the cobra and stretch it out stiff, it's paralyzed. You can, you can paralyze the cobra by doing that. And apparently, uh, this kind of thing happened with the Egyptian, uh, the, the people, in, the priests or whoever handled snakes in Egypt um, and they could just take them out of their cloak and throw them down, you know, ah, look at that. And they throw it down and of course, it's unparalyzed. It hits the ground and uh, it begins to move Um, I'm thinking something like that happened. Uh, I'm not saying it's it's impossible that they were tapping into other spiritual powers, um, but it seems likely that this is something they were doing. So they took out the, you know, Pharaoh called for him, hey, I've seen this done before, right? So you guys come on out. See what Moses did? Again, I think Moses probably had seen this or heard of it before, so I don't think he was too surprised. Um, so they threw theirs down, ha, snakes, see, we can do that, that's nothing, all right, except that Moses and Aaron's snake ate the other two, right, so, again, I think this is such a setup, God set this up, right, snakes, boom, yep, you think you can do snakes, go ahead, do your snake thing, okay, there's your snake thing, now my snake's gonna eat your snakes, right, your snakes are gone, okay, so, um, interesting Interesting power play right there. Um, Wajet, as I've said, uh, was a snake goddess. Uh, Probably one of the oldest goddesses in Egypt. Um, She's associated with justice and time and heaven and hell and the protector of all of lower Egypt. Um, And so the the serpent, Wajet, became uh, the symbol of uh, royal authority in Egypt. And to have uh, Pharaoh's snakes... Be eaten up by Yahweh's snake was a definite sign, um, and the, the symbol, uh, the, of the snake with the sun behind it, it, was a crown for Pharaoh. It was called the uraeus, so that's what he wore as part of his crown. Um, <clears throat> this is certainly a contest between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Okay, uh, Pharaoh here being the seed of the serpent, and Moses and Aaron representing the seed of the woman. This is an introduction to the ten plagues. Yahweh confronts and defeats Egypt's oldest and highest goddess, Wajit. The stage is now set for Yahweh to demonstrate his power over all of Egypt's gods and goddesses. So, uh, I'm going to conclude this here by saying, uh, Yahweh is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the only God. The only God. As the divine storyteller, he has authority over all things. We have our Egypt, too, and our Egypt has its gods and goddesses. If God were to arrange a similar story today, our plagues would be against sex, money, cell phones, computers and electronics, health and beauty, food, vehicles, Things of this sort. There would be plagues against those things. I can't imagine what would happen. uh, But maybe some of it's already happening for for all we know. Um, While we may worship many things, he is the only one worthy of worship. He is the only one worthy of worship. How far had the Hebrews gone over 200 years towards becoming more Egyptian? Did they have snake and frog statues or paintings in their homes? hundred years, long time. <clears throat> they were pretty popular in Egypt at one time. Um, hey, it's just a picture of a snake, really. I mean, you know, Yahweh didn't mind. <clears throat> I don't know, maybe. Uh, so, um, were they pursuing the same things the Egyptians were pursuing? The scriptures don't tell us this. We are told that many of them still cried out to God Most High the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, on the basis of his covenant with them. They wanted to be delivered from slavery. We have to begin to wonder how they responded to the idea of actually leaving Egypt and completely changing their way of life, completely changing their way of life. When this is over, Egypt and the world will know who Yahweh is. And Israel will know that this is their God. Let's pray. Yahweh, you are infinite. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are the maker of heaven and earth and author of all that comes to pass. Help us to know you and to see your power and glory far above all of the other things that would be God's in our lives. Glorify your name in us even as you set us free from our Egypt We pray this in the good and strong name of Jesus, and amen. Blessed be the living and active Word of God.